Why are we doing this at 8.15? So I can get, work on my column. An early start. Welcome to Sport Unlocked. Me, Rob Harris from Sky News, Martin Ziegler from The Times and Tarek Panja from The New York Times. At the end of a record-breaking transfer window for the Premier League, prompting fury from the La Liga boss Javier Tevez talking about British doping. I assume he's only talking about the Premier League. He's not got some issue with uh, the Welsh or Scottish or Northern Irish spending. Well, yeah, I don't think there are any um, any blood bags in a, in a still locked up for, from many years ago <laughs> relating to footballers from the Premier League. But not sure we can quite say the same for um, those from Spanish football. But anyway, that's a, that's a completely different subject. I did actually press Javier Tebas on that in a 2019 event in Madrid. He certainly became a lot more uh, vocal. <laughs> well, you, you never know. You never know who's listening either. Dr. Fuentes, if you're listening and you, you want to find a good home for your spreadsheet, um, there's a park bench near me if you'd like to leave that. We could uh, go through it here on the pod one day, guys. Thanks. Uh, yes, indeed. I think we're, what, but this is a reference to the uh, the Operation Puerto doping saga, which um, has emerged, I think, back in 2006 when frozen bags of blood and plasma were seized in a clinic run by Dr. Fuentes in Madrid, and um, it's never been, it's never actually been emerged who this uh, blood belonged to, but the athletes from a number of sports were allegedly involved. Could be a running theme where we just return to past unresolved sporting matters. But as for this week, so the transfer window, what, almost £3 billion spent by Premier League clubs, £300 of it by Chelsea, that takes their spending in the two transfer windows and the new ownership to... £600 million. Pretty incredible. And actually, speaking of the January transfer window, it's actually the net spending, which is i.e. obviously the, the money spent minus the money that's come in through sales, is something like, it's nearly four times the previous record. Um, yep, £729 million, yeah. which is incredible, isn't it? And as you said, why now? And, and compare that to the other European leagues. Most of them are in net profit uh, from sales. The Bundesliga, so the Premier League 729, might be in Euros this, uh, the Bundesliga won. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's right. Chelsea, on their own, spent more than every club in La Liga, Serie A, Bundesliga and Ligue 1, Ligue 1 in France, combined. Um just madness. Certainly one way it's viewed within Chelsea is they bought the club for two and a half billion pounds last May. Now you've got Manchester United being talked about as a six billion pound sale potentially as the Glazers try to sell. So that's three and a half billion difference. And they've spent all this on players to normally strengthen the squad as they see it. I wonder if this is a, a, a massive gamble to try and get into the Champions League, not just for reasons of prestige and to make a statement on you know, the, your first season of ownership. But if you don't get in there, then you're potentially 90, 100 million pounds down on your income. Um, but it's a, it's a bit of a gamble, isn't it? If you're sort of speculating to accumulate and then you don't, and they're 10th in the table, it's not going to be easy, even with all these new players. Um, and if, if they don't get there, then suddenly that comes off the that comes off the revenue income stream. Um, then you have to look at the UEFA and Premier League spending controls. It's 
I think it's it's, it's going to be pretty dangerous. They'll have to sell a lot of players in the summer if they don't get into the Champions League, that's for sure. So here's one to talk through. The Champions League, UEFA financial fair play and the Premier League's financial fair play rules for those who are less familiar with them. So UEFA, under the revised FFP, they do allow 60 million euros of losses over three years covered by the owners, don't they? So if you want to divide that up equally, that's a 20 million loss per per season, Rob. Um, And Chelsea in the entire Bramwich period were losing a million a week. Um, And these guys were supposed to be the, the, the smart investors this idea that they would figure out how to run Chelsea in a more sustainable fashion. Uh, we haven't seen any idea really of how income is going to be coming in to, into Chelsea, but we've seen a lot of money going out more, in fact, than any other time in its history with these two transfer windows. And this issue about the long contracts, the Premier League does allow £105 million of losses over three years, but of course it's the Champions League Chelsea want to be in. Well, ultimately, of course, they could end up in the Europa Conference League as well when they have to abide by FFP as well. Some of these contracts, they are spread out over a long period. This whole issue of amortisation. So if Chelsea were to pay £100 million for a player on a 10-year contract, it would only count for £10 million each on the balance sheet for 10 years. But if they're to sell a player for £100 million, they get to sort of bank that as immediate profit. Yeah, but UEFA have said... However many, yeah, you, know, you could sign them for 100 years, but as far as UEFA is concerned, it's going to be a five-year maximum on the on the amortisation. And the, the other weird thing, we're talking about these accountancy procedures, which are, you know um, can be a little bit esoteric, but the reality is this. Here's one example. Mudrick, one of these big money transfers that um, Chelsea managed to get over the line, they beat Arsenal to him. The, the fee was £70 million plus another 13 bonuses. And talking to the Shakhtar CEO, one of the reasons they agreed to sell uh, to Chelsea and not Arsenal was because Chelsea was going to give um, most of the money in within two years. Uh, and Arsenal were going to spread the payments out over four years. So the reality is Chelsea is still sending this money out of the door at a really rapid rate of knots, um, whatever it may, may say on the balance sheet. What I'd like to know is... A little bit more about Todd Bowley and um, this guy, Badad Egali, the, the, the chap from um, Clear Lake, Chelsea's main investor, who've been going around Europe bagging these players in parts of the media being celebrated for, for seems like, their, their intelligence and their ingenuity in getting this over the line. But to me, it seems like they've been paying exactly the price the clubs have been asking for. I don't see any any genius here unless... unless um, you see any different guys? Well, you do sort of wonder part of the strategy, given the fact Enzo Fernandez this time last year surely would not have been a player necessarily on Chelsea's radar. Benfica only signed him in the summer. He was yet to play for Argentina at that point. They paid 15 million euros for him. He then made his Argentina debut in September. There he was at the World Cup in the World Cup final, helping them win the competition. And he's on the radar, best young player of the World Cup. And they're Chelsea are paying 120 million euros plus for him. Yeah, that's some inflation, isn't it? You know, from I think it was 10 million plus 50, uh, euros plus some add-ons. So for Benfica paid for him to suddenly, you know, it, so yeah, it's, it's about a tenfold increase in six months, um, which, which 
which is like crazy. So yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I wouldn't say <laughs> I wouldn't say it's brilliant transfer spotting. You know, getting a player no one's seen and you know, getting him for a bargain. Yeah, well, of course, if you're going to pay 105 million. You're going to get him, aren't you? But um, on on the flip side, for this Portuguese club's model for Benfica, that's a huge win for. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Premier League is funding a bunch of other leagues around the world, notably Portugal. That's not. I think this is like at its peak that Benfica get 100 million. You almost look at Benfica's balance sheet. That is pretty much what it will make all year, any without transfers. So. <laughs> From all its football operations, one Enzo Fernandez is 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 everything else, um, and that kind of shows. Going back to what Tebas was saying, and and what the fear is in Europe about that impact of the power of the Premier League over everybody else. That, that like you could say it's the Premier League success and fine, but there is genuine impact for the rest of Europe, um, where you have Bournemouth spending fifty million uh, pounds as well in this window. Bournemouth middle of the Premier League, 20,000-seat stadium, you know, hardly a massive, much-heralded club, but they were able to outspend almost all the biggest clubs in, in the rest of Europe. But what that looks like in the future is is something that's creating uncertainty um, across the continent. But it means the Premier League money is redistributive if it is going out to Europe, so European clubs are benefiting from that Premier League wealth. Yeah, but you would say it's inflationary, right? So who are these European clubs going to buy? Um, they're not. They're not going to be able to afford the the players the English uh, teams are signing. Otherwise, they would. And then, and when it goes wrong, uh, guys, if you've got a, a player on an eight year contract or, or or whatever, or you've bought a big money signing, who are you going to sell them to? Because it seems like English clubs are only going to be able to sell them to English teams at some point because the, the foreign teams aren't going to be able to afford. Um, the, the, even the cast offs at some point. Yeah, we've seen it with Ozil and Aubameyang in recent years, particularly at Arsenal. Well, yeah, for sure. Um, just to just to go back to Tevas, who we started off talking about, um, he was. I mean, it's it's not the first time he's had a sort of rage at the Premier League um, for sort of inflating the market. Um, but I, I think it's sort of a clear sign that he's worried about the future for you know La Liga international attention. But he was like quite sort of bullish. He was saying, "Oh, you know." The best football stars are still playing in Spain's La Liga. We shouldn't get obsessed with the question of whether the Premier League plays more. Um, we know we're economically sustainable. Ballon d'Or went to Benzema. We had the two Champions League semi finalists. Um, but I do think that's a real worry for the rest of football. That actually, it's going to be you know the Premier League becomes effectively the Super League with all the top players earning the most money, and everybody else is a sort of not quite second tier, but sort of, you know, they're the sort of runners up in the, the competition, and they they, have, they take the leavings off the Premier League's table. Yeah, but then if you look at what happened in Spain as well, La Liga has extremely tight financial controls, different to the Premier League, where they calculate the the football spend each club can do based on their revenues. We've seen. In the summer with Barcelona, the chaos that caused that they were they were desperately selling assets rather than to balance their books, which you know arguably they should have done to, to sign even more players. And it happened again um, in in this window to re-sign Gavi, um, you know, eighteen year old midfielder, pretty much would get into most teams around the world. Barcelona wanted to renew his contract, and um, 
they had to go to court, civil court, to to force that through because La Liga, the league he plays in, said, you know, you, you're in breach of our regulations. But it make, makes you wonder, this stuff isn't standardised. To me, it looks like the La Liga regulations are much tougher than, than what we see in England. Um, La Liga did a presentation talking about the amount of um, losses each Premier League club is able to endure thanks to owner investment, etc. But if you don't have a standardised model, you're going to have an issue, I guess, where some clubs are going to feel they've been they've been unfairly penalised on a European level. La Liga would say it's in order to stop teams going bust. And there's some merit in that, isn't there? Well, probably. I mean, you know, that's why there's all this sort of stuff around the football regulator. You know, white paper is going to be announced next week, and that's all about financial sustainability. Um, so yeah, every, everybody is focused to an extent on sustainability, and that's how you do it, I guess. Is, 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 is well, it's bringing in more cash, and yet that has even caused controversy this week with a potential sponsorship for Tottenham from South Africa, where there's been a backlash with you know cost of living issue there. This is. Um, the SA Tourism proposing to spend a third of its annual budget, um, something like um, forty-two million pounds over three years, uh, on a, a sleeve sponsorship deal with Spurs, a bit similar to the Visit Rwanda one that um, Arsenal have. Um, I was on I was on the radio in South Africa talking about this earlier on in the week, and some you know they had an expert on saying, oh. <laughs> he said, "Yeah." First of all, he said, "said Oh well, there's 20 million Spurs fans in the UK alone. So if only like one percent of those came." And I said, "I don't think there's 20 million. I don't think there's 20 million Spurs fans in the UK um, alone. That would be one in three people. I think not even Manchester United have claimed that so far. Mm-hmm. So, Maybe it's more a reflection you know, of the ratio in the media. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true." <laughs> One and three in the media, but the uh, yeah. So I think the the reason is is you know is this a waste of money? Um, is is this a sort of just a, trying to ha- get some sort of glamorous attachment to a Premier League club, or is it actually going to generate interest in South Africa? So my argument was, everybody knows that South Africa is a tourist destination. You know, you go there for you know, safaris, the wine regions, the beaches, Cape Town, Table Mountain. So. Yeah, it's not as though you need to sort of raise the profile of it to people because, on the other hand, Rwanda, you'd say people wouldn't have thought that was necessarily a tourist destination. So that might make a bit more sense. I'm, I'm not quite sure what you get um, from Spurs unless that profile isn't there already in other parts of the world who might see the Premier League play. But therefore, you'd also say that why do Coke need to sponsor FIFA because people already know coca-cola why do visa need to sponsor the olympics visa is so well known and why do emirates sponsor arsenal when it's one of the biggest airlines in the world so i suppose it comes down to what do you sports sponsorship for yeah i think at west ham as well i noticed um florida uh has a sponsorship there and i guess it's one of the more popular tourism maybe it's just a, a reminder but rob there was a extraordinary press conference as well wasn't there there was the um i'm not sure if he was the minister but it was certainly a representative from south africa tourism uh justifying a sponsorship that they haven't signed off yet just why they've offered this money to tottenham uh, which i've not seen before 
but it shows you maybe the strength of feeling there. But what I found funny was he was saying, yes, um, this is a, a very big, big uh, league in, in England, obviously, in the UK. And it's getting popular in the United States, which is, a, a, you know, they're, they're a fast growing market for South Africa. And then he said, yes. And they're also uh, people are watching football in Premier League football in Asia. And he kind of went all around the world, essentially saying <laughs> the Premier League is watched around the world. I don't know why he, he went around the houses to say that. But but that's the point. I think if you want to look at it from a, you know, if you're, if you're selling it or if you if you find the justification to buy it, there probably isn't that bigger year-round platform for anything really than uh, than than this league, which is hugely popular all around the world. It's on TV all year round and in, in the press. And if if you want, I guess whatever you're selling to be to be shown in multiple markets, a Premier League football team isn't isn't the worst idea. Yeah, but when you've got power cuts in South Africa, you can see why the local population think. Is this money wisely spent, even though sort of forty million pounds or so the equivalent of is small in the overall budget of a country? Well, it depends. What if you've got a marketing budget, I suppose. If if they had that marketing budget and they spent it somewhere else that was less high profile and 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 um and top, maybe maybe you wouldn't have the conversation. I, I, I don't know enough about South Africa tourism, but presumably that is the part of their marketing budget, unless that money's being taken away from <clears throat> electricity shortage efforts to be moved into to sponsoring Tottenham or or any other um, you know issues within the country. It's a you know the, the point is South Africa generates income from tourism. Uh, this is a marketing effort by the tourism agency that you know that all, all countries around the world, including other countries that have you know parts of dire poverty, India. Brazil, all these places have tourism authorities um, spending up. As do Saudi Arabia, and they were a sponsor at the FIFA World Cup in Qatar, and now they're set to sponsor the Women's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand in July and August. But a quite unprecedented backlash from the co-hosts of the tournament with Australia and New Zealand FAs writing to FIFA saying, why weren't they consulted and calling for this deal to be called off? Is this a reflection really of how the World Cup is now back in uh, democratic countries again. Yeah, how, how FIFA responded to these uh, letters um, publicly? Uh... Have FIFA responded to any questions from any of the media about this uh, sponsorship at all? Have, have any of you have any of you received a response? No, but you can always see Gianni Fantina very active on Instagram with his uh, comments about the Women's World Cup even this week. Disappearing comments on Instagram stories, so they do vanish, yet... Yeah. No comment from FIFA themselves. And you can just imagine how frustrated, say, the comms department might be, the fact that almost their boss is running this separate operation on Instagram, yet they're having to be the ones on the sort of front line not able to respond to the media on significant issues. Back back to this, back to the actual sponsorship. Um, the other striking thing is the fact that Australia and New Zealand, the two co-hosts, they've issued these strongly worded letters and that they're, they're upset about this. Um but one of the reasons might be they're blindsided. It doesn't matter who the sponsor is, in this case, quite controversial. But I would have thought that you would have had some kind of dialogue with the host nations as to what's going to be on the branding. It's weird that none of that conversation has ever taken place. Um, I mean, certainly in the Olympics, that would never happen. 
I don't think you'd ever get a sponsor signing up without the local organising committee sort of being part of it. So it, 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 it is a bit weird, isn't it? Um, I mean, I suppose the, the, the reason that the Australia and New Zealand are, are sort of jumping up and down about this is the fact that women's rights in, in Saudi Arabia has been so severely curtailed for, for so long. You know, it's only recently they have actually been allowed to drive, for example, that it seems a bit weird that they should sponsor the Women's World Cup. Um, on the other hand, I suppose the Saudis are saying, well, you know, they, 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 you know they're, they're changing things. They're, they're getting women. Women can play football there now. Um, so everything's changing and therefore it's appropriate. But um, you can see why the, the hosts are not happy. And in the last year, Saudi Arabia has started a women's football team. They even won a trophy recently. They do point to improved employment rights as well. But certainly, this is now a sort of position where FIFA will have to respond. And what do they do about this sponsorship? I mean, you can't imagine they're cancelling this sponsorship. It'd be so high profile if they did uh, annul it. I, I don't see them cancelling it for, for a number of reasons, including the fact Gianni Infantino personally is so tied to that Saudi regime. We've talked about this before. He's been, you know, um, a regular visitor there. He's uh, at the highest levels. We've seen these pictures, multiple venues of him and um, Mohammed bin Salman, the, the crown prince, um, either football stadiums or in palaces. Saudi Arabia, you know, were seen to be one of the biggest backers back in 2018 for that aborted Club World Cup. Uh, FIFA sees Saudi as a, as a as a partner, and Saudi clearly see FIFA as a partner. I, I think this thing will go ahead, but just the fact that they just didn't tell the the host they were going to do this, and that's how you find out is controversial. Like Martin said, of all the places in the world where you're going to have um, a Women's World Cup and this sponsorship. Australia and New Zealand was bound to be a, a flashpoint with something like this, wasn't it? Yeah, but Saudi Arabia is actually bidding to host the 2026 Asia Women's Cup, aren't they? So um, Australia is part of the uh, the Asian Confederation, so maybe they think it is justifiable. And this week, Saudi Arabia awarded the rights to host the 2027 Asian Cup in football and also at that AFC meeting in Bahrain. Saudi Arabia growing its influence with a seat on the FIFA Council. And that was won by the Saudi FA president, Yasser Al-Misehal. Yeah, well, so that's, um, you know, another sign of um, Saudi uh, Saudi's growing influence in, in football and sport more generally. But look, in that you have, uh, for, for Asia, the world's kind of largest continent by population from, for, for football and other, you know, generally, but also in football. You've got China there and India there and, it's about, I don't know, about a quarter of the world's population, if not more. Um, you have a representative from Bahrain being the president from AFC, Sheikh Salman. You have a Qatari on the FIFA Council. You have this Saudi chap you've just mentioned. Five of the Asian Cups between 2011 and this one you've mentioned in 2027 are all going to be in the Gulf. Um, it, it strikes me there's a you know almost a Gulf takeover of, of Asian football. And the losers... Um, are East Asia. Um, there's going to be no Chinese representative. Uh, South Korea, a footballing powerhouse in in the region. Um, Mr. Chung, he doesn't. He didn't get a seat on on the on the FIFA Council. Um, I just think it's interesting that this this vast continent 
um, the power base seems to be very much concentrated on the Gulf. I think 20 years ago, they had Saudi Arabia had uh, Abdullah Khalid on the FIFA Exco, and um, at the same time as Mohammed bin Hamman from Qatar. So they had a strong Gulf presence there in 2002 when Set Blatter, I think they played a pretty key role in getting Set Blatter re elected. And then I think Abdullah Khalid died in his 50s of a sudden heart attack. Um, I wonder how you play a key role in getting Set Blatter <laughs> re elected. What do you do, Martin? What sort of things would you do when you're playing a key role? Well, one thing you do is you provide a private jet for him to fly all around different parts of <laughs> certainly Africa, oh, Africa and other parts of Asia, which he, they did. He did the, uh, that's, that was provided for him. I think it was the Saudis, actually. It might have been the Qataris, one of the two, anyway. So the issue of transgender athletes participating in sport now and an announcement from British Athletics that transgender athletes should be allowed to compete in an open category with men to ensure what they're calling fairness for the women's competitions. They're calling for a change in the law in Britain to ensure that the women's events are reserved only for competitors who are registered as female at birth. But the government says... Actually, the existing Equality Act does allow restricted entry for transgender athletes to protect the female events. And the Equality and Human Rights Commission in Britain has said that UK athletics have published inaccurate advice and they say they're disappointed by the governing body. Now, this is an issue that's continuing to create challenges for sport in terms of how it grapples with fairness and equality and martin you had a story this week on it too on the wider ioc front uh so the ioc international olympic committee um funding a study university of loughborough and the idea was you're going to look at four elite trans women athletes over a period of time and to judge how their performances were affected over transitioning and the sort of hormone therapy um, and the story I've done is that three of the four have dropped out uh, and as a result other academics other campaigners are sort of who don't believe that trans women should be able to take part in women's sport because of the physical advantages they have say so that there's sort of the, the findings of the study is a, a sort of the significance is hugely reduced and you know, what's it actually going to tell anybody um I spoke to Johanna Harper, the, who's doing the research, and she just said you know, she's not making any, any sort of bold claims that this will just add to the, the body of data. Um, but as a, the IOC, that they, they put in this policy of um, allowing trans women to compete with reduced testosterone. So I think if they were hoping to get any significant information from this, which would enable them to... Uh, either clarify their position, their policy, or um, or change it, then they're going to be disappointed. This study, the IOC was was talking it up. I remember um, being at a briefing in um, in Tokyo, the Olympics, and this was going to be a big plank of its its research. I mean, that's one of the issues here. There isn't enough data, and this is going to go some way towards that. Um, this this is an issue that sport really is struggling with. There was comments this week um, I noticed from the British uh, long-distance runner, uh, Eilish McColgan, 
um, saying, you know, a lot more work needs to be done, but who's doing it? And there seems to be an urgency to get the rules before the work is done as well. And she, she made the point that, you know, um, and, and it's, I guess, correct when you're talking about elite um, athletes and that elite level performance, she said, you know, 1% advantage is too much. And, and you can see that when you're, when you're, you know, hair's breadth, decides who's, who's come first, who's come second, who's out the medals in, in, in a race. Uh, Martin, where, where, where are we going to get, where's the next big kind of IOC pronouncement? Or is it, are, we, are we here now? And now it's up to sport again to, to, to make, a, to make um, sense of this. Well, the, I mean, various sporting bodies are doing it all the time. So we've had World Rugby. Um, we had World Athletics, I think we talked about last week very briefly that they've they've lowered the testosterone levels to from the the half the ISC's guidelines and but probably are going to have an open category at some point in the future that they've not confirmed that officially yet but that seems to be the 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 direction of travel um we've had swimming already so i i actually think the IOC is going to stay out of this and you know, they come to a position where they're not going to they're not going to make any pronouncements, probably, or just say they'll leave it up to individual sports, and that will get them off the hook. Yeah, presumably it's um it's a hard study, anyway. Given the sample size, I, I can't imagine across multiple sports that you, you have a, a, this large pool of elite level, world class, you know, trans athletes. Or do you need world class? I I, I don't know, but do, do you see what I mean? The, the, what, how big is the the sample to get to get the data? Well, I think that's been the problem, and that's why you know even even four would have been you'd say would have been a tiny sample size, but now it's gone down to one. Uh, yeah, that's a problem. So the war in Ukraine now, and the growing backlash against the Olympic decision to allow athletes from Russia and Belarus to compete as neutrals at the Paris Games next year. Now we've had the leaders of Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania opposing that decision and calling for Russian and Belarusian athletes to be banned. They have dangled the prospect of a boycott of the Games. That is the ultimate threat and one the Ukrainian Olympic officials haven't deployed yet, but they certainly are saying that they cannot compromise on the admission of athletes from Russia and Belarus at those games, especially given the fact that Ukraine has seen athletes killed in this war, which has now been going on a year. There will be a significant moment in the next week because the British government is convening talks with dozens of countries from around the world to discuss what to do to oppose this decision by the IOC. Rob, this is the IOC that a year ago said that Russian athletes should not be competing in, 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 in sport. It backed um, other organisations, football, for example, that were doing this. Um, I, what I don't understand is what, what's changed from then. The war um, and Russia's actions in, in Ukraine are, are, have perhaps even hardened since, since, since the, the start of that invasion. The stories of of um, Russian action in various towns and cities across Ukraine are, are quite quite horrific. Um, it's ongoing. How how could the IOC have now come to a decision that it's now okay to allow Russian athletes to compete, whether as neutrals or anything else, 
when a year ago they didn't. I, I just don't see how the the, the, the the kind of landscape has changed. Mm. Could it be connected to the fact that in the last year there were no competitions related to the Olympics that you uh, need to be worried about, and now suddenly there are because you've got the qualifiers for Paris? Um, could that be the reason, do you think? Could they be that cynical, Martin? <laughs> Could they be that cynical and opportunistic? I don't Nothing know. has changed. But, Looking um, tough when it doesn't impact them as significantly as it does now, when it's their own event. And maybe they are fearful about politicising the games, but also we've still got Russia's own wrongdoing in sport, the corrupting sport, the corrupting of the games they hosted in Sochi with the state-sponsored doping scheme. And the fact is, there were not significant enough punishments to some of Russia for that. And some would see them actually uh, being uh, given a lenient uh, punishment. Time after time, time after time. If you go back to this, to when that doping uh, scandal emerged, I think it was, uh, it was at Sochi, but it burst into the public light and um, just before the Rio Olympics in 2016. Seven, eight years on from, 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 from that period, you know, we are still kind of suffering the, the after effects. And even as Russia has been brought back at various Olympics, there have been bad actors. The, the last uh, Winter Olympics, the last major Olympics was in Beijing. What was the big story? It was a 15-year-old, a 15-year-old, uh, you know, a, a minor who had um, failed a drugs test before, before, before the Olympics, um, Valieva. And then what happened after that is the Russian anti-doping agency has refused to to publicly reveal what it found. Like there is there is no um, trace of of its the details or the contents of its investigation. And and now you have the World Anti-Doping Agency, you know, looking to potentially appeal um, the Russian anti-doping agency's verdict in this. So again, it's it's Russia bad actor in sport, but, you know, at the same time, you have the IOC saying, you know, come back in, come back as neutrals. Yeah, but I, I think, um, to go back to the Ukraine thing, the invasion issue, I think this is going to be actually now developing into the biggest crisis the IOC has faced for 40 years um, since the 1980s, because if you get Ukraine and its neighbours, Poland, some of the some of the, the Baltic states. Latvia, Latvia. So they're, they're not keen to, yeah. yeah. If we get some of those, because that that can build its own momentum, can't it? And then, then you have the the rest, the other Western countries drawn in. We've had the British government all, already talking about um, criticising the IOC for um, their moves to allow the Russians back in. If this takes on a that sort of dimension, this is a massive crisis looming for the IOC. And it's crazy because it, <laughs> it's been in their own hands. They took the difficult decision a year ago. Now they tr- think this is the easy one to let the Russians back in. But it's really, I think it's going to blow up in their face. And as Graham Dunbar from AP, a great friend of the pod, did point out in a piece about how the IC responded to comparisons with apartheid era South Africa being excluded from the Olympics for more than 20 years. The IC said that UN sanctions are in place against them. Also, when athletes from the four Yugoslavia competed as independent neutrals at the 1992 Barcelona Olympics. And as the IC point out, there are no UN sanctions in place currently against Russia and Belarus at this moment in time. Russia, as a permanent member of the UN Security Council, can veto any 
resolutions that are proposed. Well, that gives the that gives the IEC a good <laughs> a good cop out, doesn't it? Well, so so hang on. If they're saying that now, why did they ban them a year ago then? If if we're, if they're talking in these terms, what well, again? I, that that we that's something that needs to be made clear. That again, it's um you know the, I guess maybe you can call it the problem FIFA problem. The the access and the opportunity to ask these questions is, is so limited that you know Thomas Bark, the IOC president. I, I don't know when the next time he's going to face um, questions from the media, but that'd be the obvious one, wouldn't it? Like. You, there was no UN um, resolution last year when they were banned, was there? Unless I missed that. Um, what, what's that got to do with it now? Well, that is the exact question. That's the point, isn't it, Tariq? One other thing about this, because 2025, uh, Thomas Bach is due to step down, I mean, there's rumours he may try and change the rules to stay on, but if he steps down as RC president and people's already lining up, um, uh, uh, no one's actually formally declared yet, but like Kirsty Coventry from Zimbabwe, the head of the RC Athletes Commission, she's she said she's considering it. Seb Coe is considering it. Do you th- is being pro-Russia in terms of pro the return of Russia is it, does that help you get to succeed and become the IC president in the Olympic family as it is? Or do you think being strong against Russia as sort of Sebco has in terms of the doping uh, and world athletics, does that help you? But what do you think? Well, you do have to be an insider and IOC member to be able to run for the IOC presidency. And very often it points to the fact that given the large number of members and bodies around the world that actually those who are more forthright is it going to count against them well you know your first point Martin, is not a bad one to look at no, thanks, in kind thanks, of thanks, yeah but, but yeah no you've you've said something interesting <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know in a broader sense what the reaction to russia's invasion of of ukraine has it been broadly condemned and is it still being you know, is passionately, you know, opposed all around the world. And that's something that, you know, there's parts of the world maybe that aren't as offended by by what Russia has done. And that, and you're talking about an election that that involves the world, whoever's going to vote for the, the IOC president, these various delegates. Maybe some people don't care as much as 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 um, as, as other parts of the world, and that that, that, that is the reality. Um, and on on your point about doping, God, that's not going to get an IOC president elected, is it? No, I mean, you're right. You know, I think, for example, you're right. South Africa has refused to condemn the Russian invasion, for example. So, yeah, you're quite right. We await the views of one of the British members, Princess Anne, if she uh, perhaps speaks to us about this. <laughs> the, the invitation's opened. Uh, um, your your highness, is that right? Is your, royal your, highness, highness, your royal highness, I think. Your royal highness, there you go. We'll have to get the titles right if she does come on Sports Unlocked. But actually, a sort of change in things that have less becoming less formal in the world of horse racing. Actually, this week with the Jockey Club announcing an end to the formal dress code at horse racing. Apart from at the Derby in the Queen Elizabeth II stand. And they're still maintaining a ban on effectively football shirts. All sports shirts can't be worn. But some are seeing this actually a bit of a 
sad thing. They like to sort of dress up for the racing, but it's uh, horse racing's way of getting more inclusive in Britain, they say, by removing some of those sort of strict formalities around attending. What's your personal view on this, Rob? You're a, you're, you're a man who likes going to the, 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 the horse races. Um... I think it is part of attending horse racing, isn't it, dressing up? Although I did feel out of place at the 2020 derby at Epsom. That was the behind-closed-doors derby, turning up not in a suit, and yet some people still were there. Some of the media in their full uh, top hats and tails, despite the fact it's completely empty, Epsom. But, you know, I think one thing about horse racing is actually it's not this elitist, high-end event necessarily. A lot of people do go and it doesn't cost that much to go and they like to dress up as part of it and you get an all-day of entertainment. Not to sound like an advert. Well, that sounds like a great advert for attending the, uh, the races. So uh, how, how, does one, how does one manage to get to um, Britain's horse racing scene? Where's the best place to, to get tickets and, and things like that, Rob? I mean, it's good, like... I think Cheltenham has already sold out and that's over the four days. They were looking to expand it to five days and that's attended by a lot of people. So it perhaps shows that interest still in attending certain big live mass sports events. Although probably some of it still has to do with uh, getting together to be able to drink for several days. So I guess it is for those who aren't familiar with it, you know, it must be quite an experience because um, I guess horse racing is one of those um, quite odd sights to see if you're not used to it. Right. I mean, you described some of that pageantry, some of the dress, some of the different codes, the, I guess the, the, the boozing they might be familiar with. And then you've got the um, these these thoroughbred horse horses just um, belting it around the track. Yeah. And actually, but that with that drink, actually, it does occasionally bring some disorder where disproportionately football can get criticised more perhaps publicly for unrest there, whereas horse racing, they have had sort of significant issues with it over the years at the end of a full day's drinking and racing. That about brings an end to this week's edition of Sport and Lots as ever. If you hit subscribe, it'll automatically land into your feed. Thank you as ever for listening. Goodbye.